Welcome to Derail Trains of Thought. Welcome back to Derail Trains of Thought. I'm your host, Timothy Deal, a.k.a. Bizarre Randy. And I'm Nick Hayden, a.k.a. Stuart Lem. And again, welcome back to the show. We've got uh, something special in store for you today. Later on in the podcast, we're going to have a special guest who will be talking about a book that he's recently published. And I can say with some certainty that uh, it's going to be an interesting interview. Call it psychic, if you will. I, I can kind of see the future later on to the podcast. I know there's some good stuff. Uh, you, you have a very good sense of what will happen in the future. Yes, I do. Yeah, it's, Which relates uh, to our uh, theme today, actually. Yeah, kind of. So uh, let's, let's do it. Let's go into story school. Today's topic for Story School is time management. More specifically, how do we manage as storytellers, as creative type people, to fit our passion into the busyness of life? To a certain degree, um, being at film school, this is kind of what I'm busy with. But when I don't have the parameter, I have to admit that, Nick, you are actually much better at this than I am. Well, I was think I was thinking about this that um, writing I think is a little easier to manage than filming because writing I can if I have half an hour or fifteen minutes you can get something done. If you're filming, yeah. it's much more it's much more collaborative. You have a lot more people to organize and scheduling and even editing something takes quite a chunk of time to just get into any sort of rhythm. That's true. Still, I, I still say the point remains that. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about Darian's story uh, earlier, and a lot of times, for me anyway, I don't. It's either the hesitation that I don't get around because you know I'm so worried. It's that issue of first putting the pen to paper, or in my case, first sitting down at the computer of the blank screen and trying to even begin. Or you know, it's just it's so much easier to be involved in watching your other stories, you know, your TV shows, and other stuff, and your a limited free time you have from work, you get too lazy to put the energy into being creative and productive on your own. At least that's the struggle I often have. And I'm, I've always been impressed with how you've, you, you're staying very prolific, even, even before you got a son. And I don't know what it is exactly. I know people have asked me before, what's your writing schedule? I've had some friends ask me because they want to develop a schedule and get more writing done. And most of the time I don't actually have a schedule. Per se, I you know I would like to say I get up every morning at five o'clock and write till seven, um, <laughs> or which I don't because I like my sleep. Uh, <laughs> no one can blame you there. Exactly. So I think my main ability is just to keep trudging along. Um, I'm also very. I'm also, I guess, kind of reckless when it comes to writing my first draft. I don't do a lot of editing after the fact, but I don't overanalyze what I'm writing right then. I just try to keep pushing forward. It depends on the book or the the short story I'm doing. The short story I was writing about uh, from the Twilight Dawn universe, and I started it one year, I think. Got 2,000 words into it. I think left it alone for about a year and then finished it up. Not unlike Squire. Except... Not unlike Squire. I, I think it's actually relatively common for me to get... Getting stuff started is really easy for me. Like, just putting down, you know, a couple thousand words and getting the story started. And then sometimes I don't know what to do with it and I let it sit. And I think maybe my prolificness is more just I have lots of projects going at any one time and I can, it seems like I'm always finishing something because I'd always, I'd had 10 things started previously. You, yeah, you have a habit of starting something, kind of losing interest or getting distracted by another project <laughs> and then working on that for a while and then kind of leapfrogging all over the place. And I think, I wonder just how my mind works that there's a, I juggle lots of balls in my head and actually I juggle lots of duties, I guess, in life also, you know, work and then I, I teach writing and I like to write 
and tried to write relatively often and you know and now I have a son and and I think I I kind of juggle everything in little packets hmm. as opposed to trying to sit down and punch out you know 2000 words I just sit down and write something and try to do that three times a week when I did the girl called snort I did it partly online serialized so that it would make me get it done I only wrote 500 words Every, I guess, three times a week about, which really gets a novel done fast. I mean, comparatively, as opposed to trying to sit down, you know, I'm going to write 1,500 words every time I sit down, which, you know, sounds great. And you can do, at least for me, I can do for three, four days and then I give up because it takes too much time. See, I, I guess because I, again, I didn't actually go through writing school, so I, I don't think as much in terms of I'm going to sit down and do this much when I am working on a story. My style is I actually do do a lot of editing as I write, which is good and bad, I suppose. It lets me do a lot less afterwards. And I think just because I'm in the habit of... I know, I know you handwrite all your stuff for first draft. I, I type it all from the get-go. Well, so I've, I've done both ways, actually. Um, Girl Called okay. Snore ended up last half being completely typewritten. I, I kind of switch off depending on what I'm writing and how soon I have to turn it around. Okay. But I, I guess I I guess I don't come up with a set schedule for this is how much I'm going to write. I just kind of how much I, of it am I am I able to pound through before collapsing? In bed. <laughs> <laughs> I do I do think personally I guess the two things. One I think starting writing is very very hard. Once I get going, once I get a thread a plotline going, you get a hundred words in or something. Normally I can punch some more out. Honestly, a thousand words is about my limit. After a thousand words, most times I'm done. I can't. I can't manage anymore. I mean, I could, but for how much time it takes and excitement and energy levels. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll hit a stride where I just plow through. Probably around. What was that? That book or that story I wrote for the story project? Like one, the first one. Um, well, adopted royalty. Adopted royalty. That's what it was, and I, I was like doing like 2,000 words a day in that thing for a little while, which I look at now and I see a ton of problems with it. But that that was an idea that had been uh, brewing for a while, so that helped. My wife, she does very much, I kind of do bit by bit. My wife is kind of a feast or famine writer, where she won't write anything for a long time, and then she'll sit down and for like four hours straight just type. <laughs> and she writes very well when she does that, but she gets she, she kind of needs the time to get deep, deep into it. Where like mm. she doesn't notice anything else going on. I can always pull out relatively fast. Um, oh. I do that with movies too. I don't. I don't often lose myself in the movie. I can or a book even. I can stop mid sentence of the book and go and do something else. Where that drives my wife nuts. <laughs> yeah, that would probably drive me nuts too. Actually, <laughs> I do think I always felt like I was the most creative in high school. I think this was the reason I had. Lots of time driving back and forth to school. I have my mind wandering. I would always be playing music. I think to use your creative time well, you need some time of, I don't know if you need it, but it's nice to have time for me at least to let your mind wander, to have the free time of being bored almost. That makes a lot of sense because when I was working for the genealogy department in Fort Wayne after graduating, I had a lot of time, you know, driving there. I was still living at home, so driving, you know, 40 minutes into Fort Wayne every day and shelving books all day, which is horrendously boring. To do a lot of brainstorming, that's where I came up with a, with a lot of the ideas for, well, a lot of the background of the world behind Darien's World, which I should throw out here real quick so people know a little bit more about it. Darien's World is basically, not Darien's World, Darien's story. <laughs> Bobby's World. <laughs> Darian's story is basically, in my mind, an introduction to a larger world that is kind of in my head, that it's a book that needs to be told. But Darian's story is kind of the preface to it all. So now you have a little more context there. But I remember also, during one of my drives, brainstorming, I don't remember why I was thinking about this, but brainstorming our old serial, The Revolution, Mm -hmm. and having some really great ideas about where it could go. But unfortunately, I never wrote those ideas down, and now they're gone. <laughs> but yeah, driving, free time, anytime when your mind has a, a moment to really sit and think is a great time to really try to get the creative juices going. I do think the hardest thing with being creative in the modern world, because most people are busy one way or another, it's just there's a yeah. lot more, you pulled a lot more different directions than a lot more different. 
directions than uh, previously is my assumption. Maybe it's not true. But trying to find time to be bored. I think being bored is a great help to creativity. Mm. But even when we have some free time, we tend to fill it up with stuff. Because, yeah. oh, now I can go watch this movie, or I can re go read this book, or I can go and do this. And boredom is the mother of invention. Um, <laughs> necessity is not mother of invention. But maybe boredom is the mother of creativity. Yeah. There's something about... Well, the Bible says, be still and know that I am God. And there's also something to be said for just being still and observing how the world works. And that can really inform your creativity and your vision in numerous ways. I, com I completely agree. I do think times when I've been forced to get writing done, um, I don't have the time to, you know, what I like to do. If I have time, go, go on a walk, maybe take my iPod and just kind of, you know, wander. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I feel more creative that way, but I think if you have too much boredom, too much free time, you, you fall into this trap also on the other end of constantly thinking about your ideas, but never ne necessarily putting them down on paper. That's true, and I think that's a trap that I've fallen into quite a bit. And this is where writer groups or you know creative storytelling accountability can really be handy, because I know each time that one of our writing groups has worked together on a project, I've always really enjoyed what has come out of that. Those are stories that we would never have been told if we hadn't had that kind of group. Mm -hmm. And I do know sometimes just pushing through it, and even when it seems horrible, and I've, I've had many stories where I was writing and thought, this is wretched, this is no good. Um, and then let it sit for a while, and you come back, and you're like, oh, wait, this is pretty good. Even though when you were writing and kind of forced to by deadline to write it, you were just trying to get something done. Mm -hmm. um, and you didn't have the time to kind of revel in your creativity. I think writers really like to have that time to kind of revel in their ideas and think about them and, you know, listen to music that inspires them about it and just kind of live in this half-formed, not-quite-on-paper ideal land, which I enjoy as much as the next person. But I think sometimes when you don't have that and you're still forced to write, you think it's no good because you didn't have that sort of mental dreamland uh, experience beforehand. To, to kind of build up your, your excitement about writing it. Well, you know, in, even in film school, and maybe this is true in the professional writing program, but even while you're in school and your focus, especially in, in grad school, even more than undergrad, when you, you know, you got gen ed stuff competing for your attention. But here when you're, you know, you're focused a lot on being creative, in this case, in, in the film world, you know, working together toward telling a, a story. And a lot of it is focused on some aspect of being creative. But even in the midst of doing that, a lot of it is scheduling. It, a lot of it is busy work. And sometimes it does feel like you're so involved in collaborative kind of work that you don't have... If you're not the director or the editor for a certain project, or even if you are an editor, you know, and you're just waiting for the, the footage to come to you. You may not feel that you have very much individual input or vision into the project. I mean, you do. But in a certain sense, you are working with somebody else's story. And that's one reason why I think I've been trying to, with varying degrees of success, to do some creative work on my own on the side. Hence why I've done some videos with uh, my puppet roommate. His name is Leo. Not not done for class or anything, just for fun and trying to be experiment on my own terms. And in a sense, that's what this podcast is all about, too. And I wonder, you know, the downside to being a writer is that it's largely a lonely sort of occupation, unless you're, like, writing for TV or something. Um, so you're your only motivator. And that's why, you know, writing groups are great, because then you can talk and get excited about it. Do, do you think filming being a collaborative medium, sometimes maybe it's easier to get people all on board and moving forward than if it was just yourself? Well, certainly in the sense that no film can be done by a single person. You you need a crew, you need people to work together with, and everyone understands that. And when it when it's all flowing right, it, it really is a exhilarating experience in a sense. It's much like the body of the church, where everyone has their role and performing all the different functions. And when a film group or film crew is working together right it feels like that where everyone has has their job and are doing you know they're enjoying doing their stuff and working together and helping each other put together the 
best product possible. Film is by nature a collaborative process. The people who think that their vision is solely the only one that you know people should be concerned with are the people that it's not a whole lot of fun to work with. Well, first off, I really like that analogy. And I would love to, you know, I like to tinker in filming. I think that would be fun to get a, a good group of people that were all equally motivated to do something. Because sometimes I haven't done much filming, but when you're in charge and you're kind of the one organize everything, it, it gets very burdensome. Yeah, and I think that's one reason why our... And here, listeners are going to hear about another project that uh, we had worked on. We, we're talking about a lot of our old projects today. That is a lot a big reason why I think our Heartland People project didn't work out. Nick and I, at some point after I graduated undergrad, we were thinking about doing this series of short films focusing on people in small town life. And we did one, and we were, we were generally happy with the results. But due to a couple of reasons, partly, again, my own kind of Lack of motivation. Oh, but there was a lot of stuff to do, and it was basically just you and me organizing everything. Exactly. There was a lot of stuff. And that was, one of the, I think, one of the reasons why I, I couldn't get as motivated. Because it was like, especially since I loved your second script. And I still really would like to film that second script we wrote for that series. But I was thinking about, oh, my word, there are so many locations in this thing. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't handle it at that point. And now, having been here for over a year, I realized that if we could get more people that would be interested, some really organized people that could that are interested, you know, in organizing where people need to go and what they need to do and what needs to happen to the set and stuff like that, it could be a completely different situation. I, having been here with a lot of people who who understand this and have worked with it, I love to try to get more people who. It would be a hobby, more of a novel experience, just just to see how it would work. I'd be I'd be very curious to see if they could pick it up. Yeah, I think I've always thought it would be fascinating to do some sort of project like the Heartland People, which was supposed to be was originally going to be a semi I don't know quarterly or monthly episodic web show. I guess yeah. was that how we? I think we were in, yeah as a web series. And I, I just like that idea of put something together as a group and come out with it and experiment and have fun. And yeah, if you could get that going sometime, that would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, and it, the script was quite good. That's the real trick. I mean, in film school, it's not terribly difficult to gather up a team of people, but I don't have as <laughs> I don't have the charisma, I think, to motivate people who don't know hardly anything about the actual process to get together and invest the time because it would it would be a lot of time to be honest well what it would be like it'd be like community theater but with film yeah which do those exist many places it seems like they should it, seem, it seems like but i think they'd have to be in larger areas than rural northeast indiana that's probably true yeah yeah i think you can find actors probably but to do the actual technical parts it's harder to get mm -hmm. particularly the business and organizational aspect of it see tim when you if you come back this way after graduate school you need to start up a, a film community theater <laughs> i think that would be fabulous maybe you need to find a partner with more charisma <laughs> is uh harlan people on youtube no i need to get because at one time i wanted to put all of our stuff out in order that we had done it so i was gonna put wallace p fitzgerald and then do the heartland people one and then do our crazy uh, cinema sports one Oh, yeah, cinema sports. Well, because I thought, I'm starting to put all kinds of stuff on my website. I was going to put Heartland People on. I put DT, DTR up. Yeah, I saw that. Oh, another aspect about time management, why I like this idea for this podcast is next month, November, is National Novel Writing Month. And I've been thinking for, for the last couple of years that I'd like to participate. Um, if you don't know, National Novel Writing Month is a crazy idea where in the 30 days of November, you try to write 50,000 words. You're not supposed to start anything beforehand. You can write notes or outlines, but the actual writing of the novel is supposed to happen during November. Honestly, that's a lot, a of, lot of words, especially, especially for me. I don't write necessarily that fast. I'm more plodding along at a decent pace. So this time management thing, I thought, well, in between projects, can I do this or at least some some substantial amount of it? So I've been trying to think, and I'll, I'll have to figure out how I'm going to work this schedule. But I'm going to have to write every day in a substantial amount among everything else, without driving myself completely insane. So maybe next, well, probably two podcasts from here, we can see if I'm still sane or not. <laughs> so so it'll, I'll, I'll have to put the stuff we're talking about now to the practice yeah. soon. Do you have an idea how much you're going to try to write per day? No, 
I think if I can hit over a thousand, I'll be happy. Technically, you need to write 1,600 a day to hit 50,000 words. I think my goal is going to be more, see if I can tell a complete story in November, whether it hits 50,000 words or not. Okay, that's reasonable. And I'll probably take Sundays off because I'll need a day off and I'd like to try not to write too much on Sundays anyways. Mm. It'd be a good recharging thing. And luckily it's one month. I have a new website up where I'll be posting the stories every day. I don't think I've mentioned on the podcast yet. No, I don't think so. Well, the Works of Nick Hayden, and the web address is worksofnick.com. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff. There are old stories. I'll keep updating our, uh, us old project of ours, since we're talking about old projects, called The Story Project. Um, and starting November, I'll start posting this kind of free-for-all novel writing thing. And I hope to kind of include an inact- interactive part of it. I haven't figured out exactly, but every once in a while maybe have polls about where they like to see the story go. It depends how what story I have and how it's going in my head. Ooh, you could turn it into a choose-your-own-adventure story. <laughs> I, I like this idea. If, if I'm going to be writing this fast, I really would like to have interactivity, this sense that people are paying attention. Yeah. Um, if I have to do it that fast. So, come support me. Definitely. Keep and me sane. we may have to update the uh, link on our webpage then. Oh, yeah. It goes to the old website right now, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. All right. I'll, I'll update that. Okay. So, Tim, do you have any other uh, ideas for your own time management, for uh, other people's time management, which is always easier? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you need to do this. Um, exactly. Uh, I'm trying to think. Again, I don't think I'm the best example for this <laughs> sort of thing. Um, but I don't th- think you're too bad at it. Well, that's one reason I want to talk about it, try to figure out you know, how to improve about it. But, I mean, it does help a lot that – I guess one reason that kind of motivated me to – do the Leo videos besides the fact that I got a Muppet for Christmas, uh, <laughs> which is awesome in and of itself. But actually when I was during my drive home after Christmas break, this would have been January, very beginning of the year. I listened to one of the podcasts that I follow regularly is the Muppet cast. Go figure. And I listened to one episode, which was a um, memoriam basically for Jim Henson. Probably wasn't the best time to to read it because I wasn't all that happy about. <laughs> I had really enjoyed my break and I wasn't all that thrilled about the fourteen hour drive back to <laughs> back to Virginia Beach. Um, so I was kind of in an emotional mood, but it was it was just wonderful to hear about how he lived his life. He was so creative in every aspect, and he is a big reason why I am such a huge fan of Muppets because just the way he lived his life and about how he wanted to make the world a better place with his stories. He, he One time he told Frank Oz that he, he wanted to spend his life doing good stuff. And I think that sums up Jim Henson pretty well. So I think the key for time management and the motivation for giving up some of your own free time, your personal free time to create something is this, at least for me, is motivated in the same sense of wanting to make, do something, you know, purposeful in life. Even if not very many people read it, just the ability to share something that I think is beautiful, that I hope will give people a better appreciation for life. That's really what my goal is for any kind of storytelling or creative project that I undertake. I remember reading... I think it was an essay by Tolkien about uh, that stories are hopefully a sense of, re- you know, we say recreation, but it's, that's recreation, that you're helping recenter yourself, helping, you know, review the world in a way that maybe you really needed right then. Because the, the world's not a nice place necessarily. And I think stories have a way of refreshing us, or can have a way of refreshing us and reminding us of you know, the good things in life. It's probably from On Fairy Tales. Probably, almost certainly it's from On Fairy Tales. What we need to do, Tim, is maybe next time do a podcast on motivation. Possibly. Well, I mean, if you think about it this way, if you're motivated enough to make use of your creative talent, you'll find a way to manage your time and you'll, you'll find a way to do what you want to do. Possibly. I think that's... Uh, you know, sometimes I need reminded my motivation because sometimes I get a habit of I have all these ideas in my head. I need to get them out, and that's why I start doing it. But that's not why I originally started doing it, and that's not really why I do it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes in the business of life, it becomes more of a habit, which 
creating a habit of writing is one way to get through the you know oh, definitely the time management. But it's nice to pull back, and I think that's another aspect of having the free time to pull back and say, why do I do this? Every time I go to a musical, even if it's just high school musical, was well, most musicals. <laughs> uh, there, there's been a couple there, but every time I see a musical, I really desperately want to make one because they have such wonderful romances and love stories, and they're fun and over the top and. Mm. I'm like, that's awesome. Or even when they're slightly tragic. I mean, I remember being just blown away by East Noble's production of Les Miserables. And because I had never seen Les Mis before the, the musical. And even though I knew a lot of theater people that, you know, loved it, I just had never seen it. And just such a beautiful story and such wonderful music that, though not the happy, though not as, you know, cheery as the other ones it inspired me to want to live better and to you know fight for the for the common man in a sense I, yeah the end of that the end of that play i remember just being i mean the whole play is wonderful but the end of that play was just fabulous you're like why aren't more plays saying such good things exactly or yeah just works in general i mean unfortunately i go see a lot of movies i enjoy but they're not often ones that make you feel like you want to change how you live because you watched it yeah or, or just that the world's wonderful. You'll probably agree with me. You know, Pixar movies tend to make me feel that way. Yes. That the world's yeah. wonderful and that I want to be, you know, a wonderful person and all this other stuff. Yeah. yeah it's true. And, and it's also, in a sense, why, well, this may be a little unfair, but why uh, hearing about movies like The Social Network sometimes kind of confound me at first. Because I'm like, well, okay, first a movie about Facebook? That doesn't sound that interesting. But then a movie about a guy that gyps all his friends and gets away with it. I'm still not sure why I should be that excited about this. But then I haven't seen it. And all I knew about another movie was that it was about a billionaire that lived his life with his media empire trying to get people to notice him and pay attention to him, but dies tragic alone, surrounded by his stuff. If that's all I knew about the movie Citizen Kane, I might not be interested in that either, but I think it's a great movie. That's true. I mean, because there is a place for drama and tragedy and all. Maybe we can talk about all that sometime, but it's nice to find those movies just to make you feel good. Yeah. Oh, definitely. But when I saw Wally, that was probably one of the most special cinematic experiences I had had in a very long time. Just the simple beauty of the connection between, I mean, they're not humans but you have that same feeling of connection between wally and eve when they're zooming around through the stars and it's just it's just beautiful i think the only thing that tops i really really enjoyed wally but the first like 10 minutes of up oh, just yeah. killed me. oh yeah oh man i mean that by itself makes the movie like one of my favorite pixar movies of all time yeah, that, that montage, part of that is, well, the whole team just did a fantastic job. But man, that music. Michael, I was just talking with uh, our person we're going to interview soon about Michael Giacchino. Uh, Michael Giacchino? I guess. Yeah. I, I knew what his name was, but I wasn't going to try to pronounce it. Because he does he does Lost, and he did Star Trek, and does Up, and Ratatouille, and Alias. And... Yeah. Oh, he did Alias? That's right. I forgot. I think, I think Alias. Oh, Fringe. I know he did Fringe. I'm not sure about Alias. Or does Fringe. But he, he is great at capturing emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, some of the lost emotional music is just fabulous, too. Yeah. We're, well, we've, we've really trailed off from time management, but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we went really derailed this time, I think. So what's, what can we pull out of this discussion? Well, I, I, for me personally, if I had to break it down real easy for how I manage time, it's make it a priority, make it important, find some time to just not do anything. And for me, take it, you know, take it a bit at a time. Don't feel like you have to finish mm-hmm. your book in a day or your movie or whatever. It is. That's what works for me, but who knows it works for everyone else. And if you have some suggestions, please share them with us. Yes, please. Don't sound like we're too desperate for feeder combat. <laughs> please! <laughs> <laughs> But seriously, I'd uh, love to hear what other people, how they manage to squeeze their uh, storytelling passion into their everyday lives. All right, but with that, let's move on to the soundtrack. I'll go ahead and introduce the soundtrack today. I was trying to find a time-related one, and there were some that we, we went through, but 
I had to get pull one from the Chrono Trigger because I love the Chrono Trigger soundtrack. And we thought we'd go with something kind of calm and peaceful and beautiful. This is called the uh, 680 in Piano, remixed by Klutz. And I'll just let you listen to it and enjoy our first piano remix. Yeah, it's worth it. Enjoy. Welcome back. Today, we've got a special new segment. This is something we hope to do occasionally when we get the chance to have some special guests come in and talk about some projects that they've been working on. Today, we've got an old friend from Taylor University, Fort Wayne, the school where Nick and I met in undergrad. And he has recently published a book called Pandora's Box. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to Nate Marchand. Hi, I'm Nathan Marchand, a.k.a. The Messenger, or you can just call me Nate. Hey, Nate, good to have you here. Yes, I'm glad I'm sitting right next to Nate here, so we're very ha happy to have him here at uh, the Hayden House. Yes, and I've been uh, an avid fan of you guys since you started. I'm one of the, what, three people who's actually listened to both episodes. See, you get to good things by being, uh, being a faithful follower of your old trains of thought. <laughs> yes, I get to do some shameless self-promotion. <laughs> It's awesome. Um, Nate, tell us, for our listeners who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself, a little mini-biography, under 500 words, we'll be counting. <laughs> uh, can I just uh, tell them to go read the biography I have on my website? Uh, I started going to Taylor Fort Wayne in 2002. It's where I met Nick, and you came in the same year I did, and then you ran off to Upland, you traitor. They had the mass media, or mass communication program I needed. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you and I were in the same mentor group as well. Mm -hmm. I remember, right? That was pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, I went there for the writing program, got to meet Dr. Hensley and, and all that fun stuff. And I was there for four years, finished my degree. And while I was there, I started writing the 
book that has now just gotten published, and I'll probably explain that all to you a little bit later. Graduated in 06, worked as a reporter over in a tiny, bustling metropolis called Bluffton, Indiana. Uh, I do some freelance work now, and I write about all things Narnia on examiner.com. Very nice, very nice. And how long have you known that you wanted to be a writer? I was sort of interested in writing when I was a really little kid. Actually, I like to jokingly say that my first foray into fiction writing was a horrible failure because I, when I was about three years old, I took hedge clippers and cut the garden hose in half and blamed it on the boogeyman. (laughs) (laughs) That That didn't fly with my parents, obviously. But I discovered my talent, I guess, for writing when I was in sixth grade. I was homeschooled, for those of you who don't know. And by the way, homeschooling is amazing. Whoever says that homeschoolers will be successful obviously hasn't met me. There you go. So I was taking my English course in sixth grade, and I was given the assignment to write a fanciful story. So I thought, okay, this will be kind of interesting. And they spent a cu- the book spent a couple of days showing you how to write a fanciful story, and then said, okay, now go and do it. And I wrote one all by hand on notebook paper. It was about, I don't know, three or four pages long. The story was essentially an action-oriented version of Toy Story starring my toys. Nice. <laughs> And I enjoyed it so much, I ended up making about, uh, I think, about a dozen sequels to it. (laughs) And I have them all stashed somewhere. I don't know where, but I know they still exist. So that was where you first started, and you continued writing through, when when did you say that? Was that junior high? high I was in sixth grade. Sixth grade, okay. So, and that continued to be an interest to you and passion up through high school. Yes, and uh, as time went on and I got older and a little bit more mature, I branched out into different genres, came up with different ideas. I wrote fan fiction for a while, or at least had ideas for fan fiction. Not every thing I was a fan of, I wrote about. Sure. And I even uh, started coming up with ideas for science fiction and superhero stories, a few of which I still think are, are viable. I just don't know if I'll ever get to make them. Sure. into anything (laughs) but there was one particular series that i was very fond of and had that was probably the one i had the most ideas for at some point i would love to actually develop it into something i just don't know when or where yeah nick and i both have our long-standing stories that we're gonna write someday (laughs) yes come january we're gonna pin you to the table and say write darian's story (laughs) Uh, yeah, it, it needs to get out there. Well, cool, cool. So tell us a little bit more about Pandora's Box, about what the story is about, and maybe how, where the inspiration for it came. You want the long version or the short version? <laughs> well, maybe better talk about, give us your actual story synopsis first. Well, the uh, TV guide version of the story, essentially the story in a nutshell, is it's set in the year 2110, so 100 years in the future, and it is about a lone female soldier who is defending the world's last stockpile of weapons of mass destruction from a ruthless dictator who was trying to get his hands on it because it will allow him to tip the balance of power in a war he's fighting. Nice. What was the inspiration for it? Was it something from the headlines or was there uh, something else that inspired you to to start the story? There's a couple of things, actually. The initial inspiration, believe it or not, came from a song, a song by a band that almost nobody has heard of anymore. <laughs> it was the, the OC Supertones, believe it or not. Oh yeah, I remember them. Mm-hmm. I was, I just bought what was then their newest album, and I was sitting at my parents' ancient computer trying to think of a story to write about because I wanted to enter in a short story contest for a scholarship to go to college, and I was just trying to figure out what do I write about? And there was a song on this album that was called Pandora's Box. The song itself was about how much power sin can gain over us if we let it. That is the gist of it. And there was a little footnote in the liner notes about the mythical story of Pandora's Box, the Greek myth. And that sparked an interest in me. I did a little bit of research on the myth, or rather I remembered a lot of things I had read about the myth. And I thought this could be an interesting story. And at the time, there was a lot of things in the news about gun control, specifically. Hmm. And there were people saying that if we want to cut down on crime, we have to have stricter gun laws. And my thought on it was always, that's really not going to do anything. That's not going to solve the problem. That's just the means of the problem, not the problem itself. Right. 
the actual problem is human beings. It's not the guns they use. Mm-hmm. So I just thought you can have stricter gun control, but that won't stop crime. They'll just find other ways to commit crimes or they'll find other weapons to use to commit violent crimes. So I kind of took those two ideas and I combined them and came up with this futuristic scenario where I thought, what would happen if there was a big war going on and then the governments decided, well, we can end this war by getting rid of the guns, by getting rid of the weapons, and then nobody want to fight each other anymore. But I realized that's not going to do anything. They'll just find other ways to fight each other. You know, it's like that old phrase that... I think it was Einstein coined it. You know how uh, World War t- uh, World War Three will be fought with nuclear bombs, but World War Four be fought with sticks and stones or something like that. <laughs> I have heard that, but I don't remember who said. No, it. it's like I don't know what World War Three will be fought with, but World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones or something <laughs> like that. So that's kind of where it all came from. And initially, like I said, it was supposed to be a short story. And as I was writing it, it just got too big for its britches and kept demanding to be developed more and more and. Hmm. And I realized, well, this is too long for a short story. It's going to have to be a book now. And by the time I got to college, because I think it was early 2002 when I first came up with the idea. And then I had what ended up being two thirds of the story done by the time I went to college. You know, then I got caught up in school and I wasn't writing about it nearly as much. I had a lot of ideas for it. I had I knew how I wanted it to end, but I never actually got around to writing about it until my junior year when I took a novel writing seminar and I decided, you know what, I'm just going to use this book as part of my project for this seminar and I'm going to get it done. Uh, That rekindled my interest. I started writing it again, started making it better because as we were discussing before we started recording, that old version is absolutely horrible (laughs) by comparison. Seriously, I looked at it like, how did I ever think I could do anything with this? I am so glad college made me a better writer. (laughs) And unfortunately, I wanted to have it done by the time I graduated, but that didn't quite pan out. I ended up finishing it, the rough draft of it, by January of 07, so about eight months after I graduated. I got my first post-college job after that, so I wasn't working on it quite as much. And then I spent the summer editing it and sending it off to Nick and one other person to have them look it over and give me feedback, edited it. And then by, I think, about September, October, I thought it was in good enough shape that I could start submitting it. I hope that wasn't too long. No. No, no. It's interesting to hear, you know, the long journey that you've gone through it and... Yeah, I, I think you've been working on Pandora's box in one form or another as long as I've known you. And so it's really, it's kind of nice to get that flashback of the long journey that it's been through. Yeah, definitely. I am very happy to have it done. <laughs> now, is there a potential for a sequel? Would you want to continue working in that world? Or do you feel that the story is finished the way it is? You see, up until about eight months ago, yeah, it was eight months ago when it was accepted for publication. Mm-hmm. And the publisher gave me some feedback on some of the things that happened in the epilogue of the book, you know, essentially the final chapter. Uh And they wanted me to make some changes to it. And actually, the first thing they asked me is, how necessary do you think the the epilogue is? And I gave them my reasons why I thought it needed to be in there. And said, well, we need this changed a little bit. That was actually one of my nightmares as I was like I do not want to deal with a publisher who's just going to tell me to redo everything so that it's not my story anymore yeah so we were saying well we need you to do these changes they didn't seem terribly drastic on the surface but the writer in me was still getting worried so I did the the first thing every writer should do although not every writer because then the poor guy would be way too busy to do anything Uh, I called Nick (laughs) and I said okay uh, I need your help with this Nick they want me to make some changes so he came to visit me we went over to a coffee house in Pearson Indiana the Blue Lion there they just got some free advertising (laughs) and we got some hot cocoa we sat there for probably about three hours and we just hashed it out coming up with ideas about what to do and it wasn't until then that i honestly thought that i would want to do a sequel i my initial thought on it was i'm going to write this book it has a definitive ending i don't think there needs to be a sequel well one of the things that the publisher wanted me to do is they wanted it to have they thought the ending for it initially was too clean too tight so they wanted something a little bit more open-ended, okay. like it could continue. Sure. I'm like, but I'm not really interested in continuing it. But as I was talking with Nick about everything, 
I thought, you know what? I could get a compelling sequel out of this. I was coming up with a few ideas even as we were talking uh-huh. that would be interesting. I decided, okay, I'm okay with it ending this way now. And I managed to come up with an ending that didn't violate the integrity of the story, I thought. And it made the publisher happy. Very nice. And it leaves enough room open for possible sequel. And I had another idea for a book that would be like part prequel, part as Orson Scott Card put it, parallel novel Mm. that would be essentially the same story, but from the perspective of the villain, because the villain in the book, while he's talked about a lot, the point of view is from the protagonist, the the soldier. Uh So you really don't get to see the villain a whole lot, but I always thought he was an interesting character. And I had this whole backstory thought out for him. And I thought I'd like to flesh that out at some point. So that was the closest thing I'd even thought of to a sequel up until eight months ago. Nice. The discussion in the coffee house was quite a, I really enjoyed it because it was fun to just kind of, I like brainstorming quite a bit and we were just throwing out all kinds of good ideas, bad ideas. Yeah. I mean, we did everything. Fun. But yeah, I, I think there certainly is a very good sequel possibility in it. Nathan, I want to, I'm going to ask you a question because you tend to be more interested in science fiction than most other genres. So I know you like mm-hmm. superheroes and other Mm-hmm. genres what do you think would be your biggest uh literary influences for either th- particularly this book or just your writing in general uh for this book it's definitely robert heinlein specifically the book not the horrible movie the book starship troopers because i was introduced to the book when i was in college and i read it and i thought it was absolutely amazing i love the book i once tried to watch the movie got halfway through it and quit I could not stand it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of an infamous adaptation. Yes, most definitely. Uh, so definitely uh, that book, and I started reading some more Robert Heinlein, and Heinlein has become one of my, my favorite authors. One book in particular, besides Starship Troopers, that I wanted to read was also by Heinlein, because I thought, on the surface at the very least, it seemed like a book that was very similar to mine, in that it was a science fiction action-adventure story with a female protagonist that was told in first person, and the book was written by a guy. That was one of my challenges in writing this book, is because a large portion of it is in first person, and I have a female protagonist. Mm. (laughs) So it's like, how the heck am I going to be able to stay in the female mindset and not go nuts? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, and I wanted to know, could I even do it well? So I read this book. As I, on the surface, it seemed like it would uh, be similar. It was called Friday. Well, the book is, ends up being very different than mine and kind of weird and more and a bit racier than I would ever go. Mm. But an interesting story nonetheless. So that was another influence. I, I think it's a lot of fun having female action heroes. I think they make for fun characters. Which, speaking of, Nathan, if you had to cast the main character, the protagonist, who would it be? Actually, that was one of the things that Dr. Hensley, our writing professor, told us to do in a fiction writing class. Which I never do. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I did it because I thought it was fun, and I'm such a nerd, but uh, because I'll do that sort of stuff. (laughs) He said that in order to keep the images of the characters in your story fresh, to cast them as if your book or story was being made into a movie. So I did that for the five primary characters in my story. Private Brewer, the main character, when I was trying to figure out who to cast for her, I picked Jennifer Garner, who at the mm. time when I was writing it was on Alias, and she was a big up-and-coming star. Was, like She was in the movie Daredevil, and she was doing a lot of female action hero roles. Alias is a really fun show, by the way. Yes, it is. So I actually went on, like, the Private Brewer is a redhead, and I actually managed to go on the internet and find a picture of Jennifer Garner from Alias with red hair, which I thought was pretty cool, although it's fire engine red, not natural red, but still <laughs> I decided that's close enough, I'm going to roll with it. The Her father, uh, William Brewer, who is plays a big role in this, I picked Liam Neeson. Because hmm. Liam Neeson's just a great actor. He's one of he's become one of my favorites. Another character is Private Brewer's best friend, whose name is Jason, who's in the military with her. I picked it was Ewan McGregor. You'll notice a theme here. I picked a lot of Star Wars actors. <laughs> I think that's a theme of our podcast. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> we haven't had an episode without mentioning Star Wars yet. Yeah, well, there you go. I just continued it. Uh, so I picked Ewan McGregor, and for Private Brewer's boyfriend, I picked his name is. Dante, he's a quite a romantic in that in this as a bit of a contrast to a lot of the other characters in the story. And I cast Jude Law for him 
And the villain was probably the most obscure actor out of all of them, although people like us would be familiar with this guy. I remember this guy because he typically plays villains, and he has a very deep, intimidating voice. So uh, I cast Michael Ironside. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with him. He does a lot of bit roles in movies, and he does some voice acting. You almost always as bad as bad guys. He's got a great name for a villain actor. Ironside. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I am Michael Ironside. <laughs> Very nice. I can see how that exercise could be a little limiting, but I, I have sort of done that. And as far as like attitude from an actor that I've seen in a movie, I remember. Oh, I'm trying to think of the name of that pirate story I wrote one time. It was about a woman privateer was the main character. And I was certainly thinking about the lady from Cutthroat Island when I was oh, writing that. Which I've never never seen Cutthroat Island. Actually, I, I've i never seen the movie. I just know it because it's quite infamous for being awful. <laughs> it was a big flop. And it is incredibly cheesy and not nearly as, as good as, say, the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. But... I love pirate stories in general, so I had to, I had to watch it. And it, and for a very cheesy B-level pirate movie, it's actually pretty fun, I thought. Hmm. And anyway, I another question. The main character is a private. Would you say this is a very military-based story? Yes, it is military science fiction, most definitely. Although, what's kind of weird is I did look up a definition for military science fiction, and the, at least on Wikipedia, it's defined a little bit differently than what I how I understood it. And that was that military science fiction characters were off planet and fighting intergalactic wars or something like that, which is not what mine is. Uh, mine is entirely terrestrial, mm. though there there is mention and I think one very brief scene on a lunar colony. But that's as far as the human race has advanced into space in my story. No aliens or intergalactic wars here. I don't see why it necessarily has to be on a different planet. Stargate is kind of a military science fiction, but a lot of it takes place on Earth, doesn't it? Yeah, from what I have seen of it, I have not sat down and watched all of the episodes yet. Neither have I. <laughs> you mentioned Starship Troopers. Was there any other specific, for that genre, was there any other specific uh, inspirations for the book? can't think of any off the top of my head. Though, admittedly, during some of the action sequences, I kept picturing G.I. Joe. Because <laughs> everybody uses laser weapons in it. And I think when I was picturing everything, because I'm, I'm very visual when I write. So I'm seeing everything happening as I'm describing it. And I think I kept flashing back to G.I. Joe from my childhood, you know, with the laser blast sound effects. And... Did the hero and villains have different colored lasers? No, I don't. I think I drew the line there. I think everyone has red lasers. Okay. Blue laser! <laughs> <laughs> Good old Homestar. Now, Nathan, you have connections with the military. Correct? Yeah, my, my parents actually met in the Indiana Air Guard, and I have a lot of family members who have been in the military at one point or another. Both of my grandfathers were World War II veterans. One was uh, an airplane mechanic in the, in the Air Force. He didn't have good enough eyesight to be a pilot, though he wanted to be a fighter pilot. My other grandfather, my dad's dad, was a motorcycle messenger for the Army. Ran over a landmine. Ooh. Almost killed him. Wow. Now, so th I assume that helped you in writing this novel. Yes, uh, I've heard a lot of stories from my parents about their time in the Air Guard. In fact, some of Private Brewer's experiences in boot camp are very, at least loosely based on some of the stories my mom has told me about being one of the few women at boot camp when she mm -hmm. was there. Wow. That's very cool. What would you say was your biggest challenge in writing the book, if you could pick a single one? That is hard to pick, because there are a couple of things I could talk about. You've mentioned a couple. The, yeah. pub, the publisher wanting to change some things, yeah. writing from a female perspective when you're a guy. Yeah. Actually, it was probably figuring out the structure as time went on, because the initial version, the one that I showed Nick... A very long time ago, yeah. it seems. Had a very strange structure. It was still all in third person, but it was supposed to be Private Brewer reminiscing on her past experiences. A lot of it was in flashback, but I still left it in third person. Oh, really? So you completely changed the tense that you're using. Or not yeah. the tense, but the yeah. perspective. Well, because one of my worries going on, going into this was that it had a very strange structure, and I didn't know how well it would be received by potential publishers and then nick being the overly humble literary genius that he is 
uh, came gave me what I thought was a brilliant idea. He said, "Why don't you make the flashback sequences a journal?" I mm. thought, you know what, that would require a fair amount of rewriting, but I like this. So that's where the first person perspective came in. So in those flashback sequences, it's Private Brewer reading her journal because she's been cooped up in this base for so long that she's afraid she's going to lose her identity. So Mm -hmm. she wrote down as many of her past experiences as she could remember so she could retain her identity should she start to forget it. When the book opens, she's miserable and is tired of where she's at. And then she remembers that she has this journal and she starts to read it. And then that's where the difficulty in writing from in a first-person perspective came from, when I'm a guy. Although, admittedly, I have to say I cheated a little bit. I made her a tomboy. She's a daddy's girl, has as uh, the oldest of four kids with three brothers. So <laughs> That makes perfect sense for a soldier. Anyway. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I was like, if you're a girl and you're joining the military, you're going to be a tomboy, probably. So, yeah. like I said, I cheated a little bit. Cool. So tell us, what do you think is the age range? Is this something that teens can enjoy, or do you think it's a bit over their head, a little too mature? I think maybe older teens might be able to appreciate it. I certainly think that college-age young adults would probably enjoy it. Private Brewer throughout most of the of the book is around 18 to early to mid-20s. So maybe some older teenagers could read it and find it interesting. And you mentioned that the book was accepted for publication about eight months ago. Mm -hmm. For those of us who are clueless to how the publishing process works, how come it took so long from acceptance to it now being available? That is an interesting story, my friend. (laughs) It is an interesting story. For all of you up-and-coming writers out there, pay heed to this. It will pay off in the long run. The publisher I'm with is Absolute Express. They're based out of Canada. They were actually the second publisher I sent the book to, so I beat the odds there a little bit, too. Really? Yeah. For all these stories about how first-time writers had to send their books to, at the very least, a half dozen publishers before they were accepted. Mm -hmm. But I managed to beat the odds a little bit here. Actually, more than a little bit. But anyway, I sent it to one publisher. They rejected it fairly quickly, although they claimed that my manuscript got lost in the mail. And that's why I didn't find out about it until about four months after the fact. (laughs) That publisher shall remain nameless. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So then I did some research online and I discovered a different imprint of the publisher I'm with right now. And I sent the book to them. I waited about, I think, eight, nine months. This was early 2008 when I first sent it out. I waited about eight, nine months, and then I found their phone number, and I called them, and I asked them if they had received my submission, and they said, well, we had a deluge of submissions, so we have a whole bunch that we're going through right now. Give me your name and the title of your manuscript, and I'll see if I can find it. So I did that. I called them again about three months later, so this is early 09 now. They said that they had found my submission, and they had sent it off to one of their readers, And then within a couple more months, I got an email from them, and they said that they had liked those first three chapters I sent them, and they wanted the next three. So I did that. And then within, I kid you not, about two weeks, if not shorter, they sent me another email saying, okay, we want the whole book now. That's That's encouraging. (laughs) Yes, definitely. I immediately just sent them the rest of the book. Then that started the longest period of waiting in my entire writing career so far. I am not kidding you. This is early 2009, I think, by this point. So I sent all that stuff to them, and then I'm, I am emailing or calling them at least once a month for the next probably eight, nine months. I'm not kidding you. Uh-huh. Trying to get some sort of an update. And every time I do it, I find out, oh, I'm, it's gotten a little bit higher. It's gone through, you know, so many editors, gone through so many of their screening readers, whatever they call them, you know, and all the way up and then by around about this time last year i think i found out that it was up to the uh, head of the publishing house and he was looking it over and he would have the final say on it so by this point i'm still calling them about every couple of weeks to find out what's going on (laughs) and i can even remember one time i called i said you know if i'm bothering you guys with all of these phone calls and these requests to find out what's going on i'm sorry and the publisher reassured me say oh no 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 we appreciate your tenacity. In fact, we know you by name in the office now. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, that's cool. And then a week before or a week after Valentine's Day or so in February, 
the publisher called me and and he said, I like it. We're going to publish it now. To which my response was, sweet! (laughs) Your persistence paid off then, it sounds like. Yeah, and it took about twice as long as it normally does because of that initial deluge. And it was my tenacity and my persistence that I think really separated me and made them look for my manuscript and it made it stick out initially. Wow. So, would that be a lesson? I don't know if they ever teach you that in school, writers. (laughs) Be tenacious. It will get you far. It might take a little longer, but it'll get you far. Nice. I haven't taken writing and how to get published classes like you guys have, but I would have assumed that after not hearing anything for months, I would have tried pitching it somewhere else. So uh, it's it's interesting that you, you, you kept with them and you kept pushing at them. Although that's the irony of it, because right before they called me and told me they were they had accepted it, I was about ready to start submitting the book to other publishers because they were taking so long. Mm. Saved me a fortune in stamps, probably. <laughs> so, tell us, where can we purchase our copies of Pandora's Box? It is available on Amazon for nineteen ninety five. I know this seems a little steep, but it's the suggested retail price at this point. The publisher is working on getting other online booksellers to carry the book. So they're talking about barnesandnoble.com and Kimball and... Or is that is it Kindle or Kindle or I don't remember what it oh, is. Then. Kindle's the the electronic version. Okay, it's of the yeah Amazon. Kindle. They're working with them to get it available, and the publisher works with Smashwords.com for their eBooks. I don't think mine is available in eBook yet. When I looked, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah I was curious about that. It's not yet, but I'll be sure to let everyone know about that when it is available. And I'm going to I'm talking with a few local bookstores here. I, I live in northeastern Indiana and I've been talking with a lot of local libraries and bookstores about carrying it. So if you're listening to this and you live in that area, you might be able to find it. But I'm also planning on having a lot of book signings for this. And if anyone is interested in purchasing a book there, I will be selling them at discounted prices so that you can buy them there and then I'll sign it for you. So Nice. And Come to all my signings. And you've got a list of those on your website, is that correct? Yes, I do. Uh, it's on my peer, the appearances tab. You'll be able to go there and look at them all. Well, what's your website? NathanJSMarchand.com. All one word, by the way. NathanJSMarchand. And we'll include that in the show notes, so anyone who doesn't remember that. I'll... Yeah, and we have a link on the Blogspot page um, yes. to your site, too. So mm-hmm. That's true. Yep. Well, very cool. Well, uh, thanks again for coming on the show, Nate. It is a pleasure. And uh, very cool to, to talk about a project that was has been successful and uh, is out there for people to, to get. So that's, that's very cool. Mm-hmm. I'll probably be able to get about five more people to buy it now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, every little bit helps. Oh, yes, definitely. Well, that's going to wrap up the show for today. We are thinking about changing up the format a little bit just because it's, the editing for this podcast takes a lot of time. And since I'm... I've been the one doing that, and since I don't have a whole lot of time in film school, uh, we're looking at, we may have to make some adjustments. And so you should be expecting us next time, maybe in a little different format, but still doing the same kind of stuff. Uh, We're still on iTunes. Subscribe to us. Derail Trains of Thought. Type in the podcast uh, search. You'll find us. We love emails. Uh, Our email is derailedtrains at gmail.com. We'd love to have feedback, ask us questions, correct us if we get something wrong. Or leave us a comment on our site, derailedtrains.blogspot.com. And you don't have to have a blogger or Google account in order to post a comment on our blog now. You can be a random visitor and just tell us more what you thought about the episode. And we'd love to hear from you. To close out our show, we have another soundtrack that our special guest, Nate, has picked out for us. Nate, you want to set this up for us? Yes, I'm a, I've been a long-time fan of the Street Fighter video game series, and I'm also, as you two are, a fan of OC remixes. And one of the cool things that happened about a year and a half ago is Capcom, the maker of the Street Fighter games, re-released in HD with updated graphics and even some updated gameplay, the original Street Fighter 2 for download on Xbox and PlayStation 3. And one of the interesting things they did is not only did they redo the graphics, but they redid the music. And the way they redid the music was they contracted DJ, well not DJs, what do you call them, uh, 
remixers, I guess, on OC Remixes to do all the music. That was very exciting, and you know, yeah. my brother downloaded the game, and I played it, and I thought it was great. You can go on OC Remixes and download it, and there was one particular track on there that I thought was just amazingly cool. It was by a remixer called Zircon, I believe that's how you pronounce it. Zircon's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the title of the track is Flying Heaven. It is a remix of the stage music for Fei Long, who is essentially a Bruce Lee clone. <laughs> Which, I haven't played a lot of Street Fighter 2, but I love this I love this original song. It spawns some really cool mixes. Yes, it is. What's so amazing to me about it is that not only does it really do justice to the original track, but I love the, the tempo and the guitars and the you and also the traditional Japanese sounding music elements that are thrown in there and how they complement each other so well and how the song starts, you know, a little bit mellow and then it just kicks in about thirty seconds in and it just gets you all excited. I can imagine someone playing the game and suddenly it kicks in there and you're just like, okay, I'm kicking the crap out of this guy now. <laughs> Yeah, we like it. We're, we're sure you'll enjoy it. So I guess it's time to sign out. This is Tim. <laughs> this is Nick. This is Nate. And we will see you next time. Adios. Bye-bye.